0: Hello and welcome to the Ackerman Center podcast, a podcast of the Ackerman Center for Holocaust Studies at the University of Texas at Dallas. In the spring of 2020, we created this podcast in response to a need to connect in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic and to explore Holocaust related topics during the time of our new virtual reality. I'm Sarah Valente, visiting assistant professor at the School of Arts and Humanities at the University of Texas at Dallas.
1: I'm Niels Romer, Interim Dean of the School of the Arts and Humanities, Director of the Ackerman Center for Holocaust Studies, and Barbara and Stan Rabin, Professor of Holocaust Studies.
0: Today, I'm excited to introduce this new podcast series titled A Year in the Third Reich. Starting with the year 1933, in each of these new episodes, We will chronologically explore significant events that took place throughout Hitler's Third Reich. In each new episode, we discuss and refer to specific primary sources, such as newspaper articles, photographs, maps, letters, etc. So I've created a handout with images of these primary sources for you to follow along. Please go to our website, utdallas.edu forward slash Ackerman forward slash virtual dash Outreach, to access and download the primary sources handout for today's episode. 88 years ago, on January 30, 1933, Adolf Hitler became Chancellor of Germany. In today's episode, we begin by listening to our research assistant, Angie Simmons, reading from a New York Times article, which was published on February 5th, 1933. The article is titled, Hitler at the Top of His Dizzy Path.
2: Hitler rode to power on an appeal to the middle class, the forgotten men of Germany, who were looking for a new deal which would enable them to save their old ideals from the wreck of a ruined world. The new leader brought color into the lives of his followers by appealing to Germany's military traditions. He reintroduced the bugle calls and the clicking of heels. He called upon his countrymen to rise against the iniquities of Versailles. He promised assistance to the bankrupt farmer. He talked to the city people about the day when life would no longer be a dreary round of job hunting. Happiness was to come with the Third Reich. Perhaps his secret lies in the fact that he knows how to combine magnificent showmanship with a keen sense for dramatizing Germany's misfortune. Nobody doubts that Hitler's original program will be diluted by the anti-Nazi members of the government who occupy some of the key positions. There can be no doubt that he will seek to free Germany from the fetters of Versailles, yet he will have to compromise with those who are opposed to isolating the Reich from the rest of the world. He is not expected to carry into effect the rapidly anti-Semitic part of his program. Thus, one is led to believe that after Hitler has finished with the chancellorship, he will probably be a chastened man and perhaps less mystically powerful than he was on the speaker's platform.
1: I think this is a really stunning newspaper article because it presents this kind of art mixture of being very perceptive. And then on the other side, however, representing something that is really almost impossible for us to see these days, and I think a really telling line in this is um, the one happiness was to come with the Third Reich, um, as well as the further down the line that um you know however he will not be able to implement his uh, rapid anti-Semitism. So in many ways, I think the article quite acutely senses that for many Germans. Hitler's coming to power is promise, is opportunity, is uh, something that brings stability, opportunity, and welfare again, together with an ability maybe to overthrow the, the dictates of Versailles. But not what we don't see in here is uh, the beginning of a war, right? And most likely, it's this other... Underestimation of him that he more likely will go as the last part says go down again, having been maybe once a little bit more mystical when he was the speaker than he was as the chancellor. Meaning seeing him as a passing moment.
0: Absolutely, I think one of the really interesting parts also about this article is this this line where he talks about how his secret lies in the fact that he's really being able to combine his showmanship with a keen sense for dramatizing Germany's misfortune. And this is something that we see happening immediately after this, during the Reichstag fire, when he utilizes this moment that we have identified as a a very turning point of 1933 um, in utilizing this event for this further dramatization of the misfortunes of Germany. Very much. And
1: this is, occurs only four weeks after he had just come to power. Um, I think our article also very perceptively had hoped at first that he would be restrained, so to speak, by the presence of other members still in, in governmental positions and of other parts of, of the German society that are still operational, right? I mean, we have the police. We have the legal process um, and judicial process and so on and so forth. But then comes the Reichstag's fire on uh, February 27th. And it's this sizing upon this opportunity once more to dramatize the threat from the left by identifying the arson with, the you know, culprit from the left, the Communist Party, but then really You know, sizing upon this and and issuing in its aftermath this new decree that essentially forgoes all the liberties that had come with the Weimar Constitution in one strike. And tellingly, without much, you know, effort, because there's a considerable amount of of support that wants to see Hitler as this force that brings in again stability and, and order
0: in the way in which the, the wording and the language of the fire decree where it was passed for the quote-unquote protection of the people in the state right so it's always done under the guise of the protection of the suffering of the german people so we see this being really started to be to be played out in the ways in which these decrees will be passed and then of course After the fire decree, you know, within a month, uh, we see the Enabling Act also being passed. But before we speak about the Enabling Act, um, there is this image that we have talked about, the Nazi Party campaign poster, because, of course, the fire happens right before the March 5th election. And so if we could perhaps look at this poster, of course, it's in German. So, Dr. Romer, please feel free to help us along here.
1: So it's a, it's first of all, the, you know, just a very simple poster. Um, it just, you know, reads the caption is the uh, parliament in flames. So um, it, it's not that there was a fire at the parliament. It's a parliament that is in flames and that it was set afire by the communists. And that in many ways, this is then what the poster goes on to explain, this propaganda poster for the election. This is how Germany will become and would look like if the communists were to have their ways. So it's this really acute moment that historians have now come to terms with that have you know emphasized that the you know the telling part of that moment is that everyone seems almost to slide into this view of being terrified by the left and being blind to the threat of the right. And that in many ways, Hitler very, you know, carefully choreographs this moment that in, in lots of ways, the, it's the dancing of, of the, you know, the abyss because of the communists. And he on the other side appears and his party as a quote unquote savior um, of, of the German people.
0: And the campaign poster, of course, is something that Germans would have seen pasted on window shops or on being advertised in the newspapers. Now, if we think about how this message would have translated... To what was happening on the ground, what they would have seen happening, the way in which their city was changing. Uh, There is an image here that I have in mind, which is this image of the German police officer, the regular police officer, uh, alongside, walking alongside an SA patrol right? And they have the German shepherd between them. And so this is an image that comes from the Bundesarchive um, that was taken on March 5th. So on the day of the election, there really seems to point to this kind of, you know, notion of the political violence that was imminent in some way. But I, I see it as a way of translating that poster. The poster says something along the lines in the little letters that the decent citizens up against the wall as hostages, that if they don't act up against the communists, um, everything will burn to the ground, right? So this notion of the order, of restituting order to the German society becomes, I think, really instrumental in this dramatization that um, was mentioned in that first article that we talked about. I
1: think that's a really good way of looking at it, but um, the drama needs also players. And yes. one of the the, the unique Again, a kind of rhetorical devices embedded in this is that now every German will become part of an actor in this drama that is unfolds because they have a role to play and they're exactly called upon to destroy communism. This is the caption at the end and they can do it in many ways, partly also through their vote. But
0: Absolutely. in other words,
1: this kind of unfolding drama all of a sudden um, has turned silent participant into active, you know, actors of sorts who have a a way to say, I think this photo, you know, it's striking if we just take it as a piece of evidence of sorts, right? We have this Mm -hmm. live caption almost, right? We have this one moment. So what are we gonna do? So we have the policeman, we have the SA, we have the German Shepherd, but then what may be looking for us alarming as a form of of violence, if you look at the guys in the background, there are a bunch of of nicely dressed uh, men, who seemed calmly to walk behind. So while we might find alarming, they in this photo almost seem to to interpret it as reassuring. Absolutely. Oh, we're safe here. They're out here. But mm-hmm. what we also see, and this is the, the real terrifying aspect that quietly is executed here, that there's a total undermining now of the differences between the official forces, police or army, and paramilitary Absolutely. units. So the paramilitary units all of a sudden are placed alongside the the state forces here, the police. So if one thinks about you know this what this picture the andas is in lots of ways the monopoly of power exhibited by the forces of the state, right? So we don't have that any longer. The the power of the party is equally important. And in truth, the SA makes up at this 400,000 members it has more members than the regular german army units at this point so it is the real force
0: absolutely and so i think this is really this change that occurs in, in 1933 where we see with the police force but then we also see this happening in the legislation itself so on march 24th some 20 days after the the election then the top you know the ministers as well as the as the president as well as the chancellor The five of them sign the Enabling Acts, which will then ask the Reichstag to turn over power, right? Granting the chancellor dictatorial powers, essentially authority. And it is after this moment, and I think it's really critical for us to point to, if we were to analyze the the specific articles in the Enabling Act, which was also called, you know, if we think about the language here, the law to remedy the distress of the people in the state. So it's keeping with that idea, right, of the suffering of the people. So this is done in a way to alleviate that pain or that uh, situation. It is not something that Hitler passes by himself, right? This is a a joint act um, done by the president, by Hindenburg, by the chancellor, by the minister of interior, by the minister of foreign affairs, by the minister of finance. So we see, you know, while uh, we might interpret what was happening with the official forces, we see here a reflection of that as well in the law. And so it is after this moment uh, of the passing of the enabling acts that Hitler has basically free reign and no longer any legal restrictions that had previously existed. So this is really that moment where it changes So if we look at the way that it ends, it basically states that it is meant to last. The measures that are created in this Enabling Act is meant to last only until April 1st of 1937. So it's giving them a timeline, or as it says, if the government is replaced by another. Um, So there is this sense of a limitation of when this will end. However, once we get to the next few years when we discuss this, we see what, what happens here. But in 1933, as it is happening... This enabling act basically gives Hitler dictatorial powers breaking with that tradition up until that moment.
1: It's also an immensely condensed, you know, and very accelerated crashing of a democracy. Within a couple of weeks, it's done. What you know stands out for us in such dramatic ways would have been interpreted at the time in radically different ways. You know, Weimar itself, toward the end, had become a highly polarized society mm-hmm. that voted more for political parties on either side of the spectrum of being radical orientation on the left or the right. And now, what would have been you know alarming to people on the left because the Hitler unleashed the paramilitary units upon them, for communist social democrats. Would have seen for many others on the conservative and kind of toward the radical right side, seen as a kind of pacification, as a restoring of order, as a kind of coming together, and as a quite reassuring experience. So this one thing could have would have meant very different things to to respectively whoever you are looking at. And tellingly though, in this whole sequence, you know, our focus is. Drawn toward the establishment of power of authority, um, of the kind of enforced conformity. In particular, the enabling act is also passed because who potentially could have opposed it is already not there any longer because they already all um, escaped. So the social democrats and the communists mm-hmm. they are not any longer asked. Um, but then, in lots of ways, what we ha- what we're not thinking about is the anti-Jewish politics. And remember, this was part of that article that said, well, Hitler will not come to implement. But he does, actually, he does. And, and we, I think, often mistakenly separate these things out because within this quickest of succession, he's establishing now a certain conformity in this society. It comes out very clearly uh, by enforcing now upon everyone to very publicly align himself or herself with state. And yes. this is now what Germans are doing. They, they have to show their flags. They have to greet with the Nazi greeting. And, and so they are brought into this alliance and alignments as much as the state has just been within the shortest amount of time. And for Jews, this leaves very quickly a very perplexing, radically altered reality because what it becomes now very apparent is that they are not going to be part of that newly shaped community that Hitler is is engendering, but are rapidly excluded from it.
0: Absolutely, and I think that is, we see this actually playing out in the boycotts that follow, right? The anti-Jewish boycotts of April 1st that actually follow rapidly after the enabling acts You know, there seems to be a sort of a conformity to what is happening. It's also is a very, um, you know, if we think about that image of Hitler greeting Hindenburg a few days after, there is still this kind of the way in which he is, you know, bowing his head, very respectful. There doesn't seem to be anything really alarming about any kind of threat to the power of the presidency or anything like this.
1: But I think it's also, and this is almost for us impossible to kind of put our fingers at. So we think, mm-hmm. so what was, would have been visible? What would have been noticeable? What would have you know, been an alarming? And I think there's a really telling passage in a memoir by a woman called Inge Deutschkorn, whose family is also on the political left, mm-hmm. and therefore more tentative to these changes. But she writes very tellingly about this early sequence that what it did almost instantaneously is it's so distrust. The not knowing any longer whether your neighbor would still be your friend Mm -hmm. or whether he belonged in this or that camp. So, you know, not being able any longer to tell apart your enemies from your friends. And Mm -hmm. that uncertainty, that not knowing, for example, makes various things virtually impossible uh, for individuals in, in this moment. They cannot be any longer who they are because they ultimately don't know Unless specifically told otherwise, whether these people are you know, falling in, into alliance with the state mm-hmm. or not.
0: Absolutely. And if we think about, you know, what starts happening after April 1st, you know, when Himmler announces the opening of Dachau, that happens, you know, in March of 1933. And if we look at a map, you know, there's this publication of the topography of, of terror, where there's a map of Berlin showing that in 1933... There were at least 150 detention centers or small areas that the essay would use, uh, of course, in a covert way. There were only a few specific ones that were um, visible and known to be torture centers. But this is where about at least 27,000 political opponents of the Nazi uh, regime would be taken questioned tortured and in some instances murdered and so there is also this um, this line that comes from a memoir that a professor who was a psychoanalyst and surgeon who was picked up very early on in 1933 and taken to one of these you know unofficial concentration camps of Berlin and He writes that when he arrived there one of the SA guards who had been a, pr- a former patient of his recognized him And when he recognized, you know, his doctor, he wrote in the form, in the registration form, do not mistreat. And so many years later, about 50 years later, Simenauer uh, writes that that note actually protected his life. And he says, you know, a number of people to my right and to my left were beaten with cubs until they died. It was horrible if they had at least shot them. But they burgeoned them to death. So, you know, he talks about the violence, the way in which it was very violent. And then he says, but that note saved my life. And so, you know, it's this initial moment we see it, it is outright violence happening. But it's exactly what you're saying, Dr. Romer. It is a moment where the allegiance of a, of the previous life, right, that moment prior to 1933 is still Um, being renegotiated and so in in this case we see how that saves his life now if we think about later years as we will do in the subsequent podcasts we will see how these uh, relationships really start to deteriorate in many cases.
1: Very well put and you know life prior to Hitler has not immediately vanished and some old friendships and alliances have not gone away And that, in a way, is borne out also by the boycott of Jewish businesses. It's a miserable failure because, in many ways, Germans are not quite yet ready, Mm -hmm. non-Jewish Germans, um, to change their behavior. Mm -hmm. So in lots of ways, those boundaries between Germans and Jews and the the kind of gaps that are um, emerging, this is the the hard work of propaganda, intimidation, and harassment, and the kind of enforced conformity on the other side but it's not that it's instantaneously there but it has to be created because up until Hitler's arrival Jews in many ways had been Germans and so you have to undo these kind of alliances and create these new new forms of belonging um, because otherwise pre-existing forms are still recognized. I mean one thing that Jews very firmly believe in and they are not entirely wrongly is that if they are war veterans, I mean, that they, they, that is still something that, for example, will be recognized.
0: Mm-hmm. If we think about this Rio from 1933, in April 1933, Hitler actually speaks to the foreign press, um, and we can listen to a little bit of what he says, and then we can discuss what is um, obvious from that um, audio recording.
1: Meine
2: Herren, seit 30. Januar hat sich in Deutschland
1: So I think what stands out here is, you know, without now trying to um, force all of you into a quick um, German lesson, is that it's a fairly collected and quiet voice in comparison to what we hear otherwise later often of Hitler. And so Hitler once again is very mindful of trying to talk down the potential threat that he poses. And without even us bothering to decipher the German, we can pick this kind of reassurance that he's providing here up just from the way he's speaking. Very calm, very collected, not the screaming, not the agitator, but just almost like as a as a kind of you know sensible, respectable individual.
0: Absolutely. And we will see how this develops as we continue to explore the following years in our following podcast. So thank you so much, Angie, for participating and Dr. Romer. And I'm really glad that we had a chance to do this. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share with those interested in learning about significant events that happened during the early years of Hitler's Third Reich. Be sure to tune in to our upcoming episode on Sunday, February 28th, where we'll discuss about the time when Hitler and Mussolini met in Venice in 1934. To keep in touch with us, please follow us on Instagram at Holocaust Podcast or on Twitter at Ackerman Podcast. Stay safe and take care. Until next time.